Thanks for pressing play. Quote, motivation is what gets you into this game. Learning is what helps you continue to play. Creativity is how you steer. And flow is how you turbo boost results beyond all rational standards and reasonable expectations. That, my friends, is the real art of impossible. End quote. And this is Christopher Lockhead, Folly or Different. On this episode, whew, we have got a legendary guy, an incredible author and thinker. His name is Stephen Kotler. And I will go out on a limb that I don't think is much of a limb. When 2021 is over, people will say his new book, The Art of Impossible, is one of the most important books written this year. I've been an admirer of Stephen's work for a long time. He wrote a uh, breakthrough breakout book a while back called The Rise of Superman, which I highly recommend. In his brand new book, he breaks down how to make the, the impossible a lot more likely, and we get into it. He is a deeply thoughtful guy. His work is based on research. You know, there's a lot of motivational speakers and go for it, hoo-hoo, blah-blah guys. That's not Steven. He is the real deal. He runs an organization where they focus on helping people make uh, the impossible probable and make it happen. And we crack his book open in a meaningful way. I would highly recommend that you um, that you uh, get out your notepad. And if you're somebody who cares about producing exponential results, I have a suspicion not only you're going to want to read his book, but you're going to want to listen to this episode a couple times. Uh, my friends at NetSuite are the number one providers of cloud ERP. They are the business system in the cloud that you need. Check out netsuite.com slash different. And if we know one thing, we know data matters. We are living in the data age, and my friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything. Visit splunk.com slash D to E. And why not go to lockhead.com, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com, and subscribe to our newsletter because we're about to launch a brand new newsletter called Category Pirates. And to the best of our knowledge, it is the first uh, newsletter on category design and category creation. All right. Now, strap yourself in. Hey, ho, let's go. Stephen, first of all, let me just say to you, when your PR team uh, reached out and I saw your name in my inbox, I thought, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> and the reason I thought that was, what year did Rise of Superman come out? Remind me. 2013, I want to say. Yeah. So I got that book, I think shortly after it came out. I read it read it's probably not the right word soaked in it and at the time i was doing a fair amount of public speaking and i think i might have beat people over the head a little hard with it <laughs> and you certainly cost me a lot of money because i gifted your book to i can't i, I don't even know how many people wow. i just thought rise of superman was one of the most extraordinary books so i, I just want to start off and thank you for that book oh you're, you're welcome that's really sweet of you to say that book meant a lot to me. I could tell, you know, I had I wasn't a, an author at that time, but even not having be sort of being able to relate to it as an author, as a, just as a reader, you could tell 
that book was so deeply researched and so much of the chemicals that hopefully we'll talk about today, the positive chemicals that drive us to do various things. It was so obvious that you were, that those chemicals were firing you to write that book, that that book had a meaning to you, that you were what my buddy Eddie Yoon would call a missionary, not a mercenary. On that one, you know, I had a front row seat at The Amazing for 10 years, right? I literally watched my friends do things that had never been done before in the history of the world and weren't supposed to be done. And they were the most unlikely group of characters, right? I mean, there was never a group of people you would have bet more against than the very people I, you know, I was watching kind of redefine the limits of human possibility. And so on a certain level, that, that book was a thank you for, you know what I mean? They, my whole life unfolded from trying to figure out how the hell are they doing what they're doing? And it's, you know, it all started there. So there was a debt of gratitude there, I think. Well, and the other thing, and this is a bit of a side note, but as a skier, as somebody who loves Tahoe, lived in Tahoe, I just adore the fact that you write about Shane McConkie. And one of the greatest things to me about him is, of course, he was a failed Olympian, right? So he said, all right, well, I'm just going to make up skiing in a whole new way. He reinvented what, what he did shouldn't have been called skiing. You know, I, uh, for, for years on my helmet, I had a big sticker that said, thanks, Shane, because he gave us fat skis, right? And so I love how you write about these misfits. Yeah, so I, I will also, so I remember, um, I knew Shane because I was living in Tahoe and, you know, um, and, but, and I absolutely remember when he first started thinking about water skis as fat skis, right? When, before, when he was, when he was like, well, what for snow is frozen water. These are the skis that are designed to work on water. I'll bet. Right. And that one of the most amazing things it's on video and people watch it all the time and they don't like, it just doesn't, it doesn't land. But when he, he had this crazy idea, so he took a pair of water skis to Alaska, right. And skied, you have to, like go to Alaska and stand on top of one of those lines and go, I mean, like nobody would ski them with normal skis and the guy skied them on water skis. It was just, it's still one of the most amazing things ever. And he did it almost as a joke, right? In the movie that it's in, it's treated as funny. And, you know, he's literally saw innovation and bet his life on innovation. How rarely does that actually happen or get captured on film? Like in that way, he literally was like, no, no, no. I know how to make this a better tool and I'm going to bet my life to prove it to you. That's, that's, that's amazing. That doesn't happen often in the history of innovation. Well, and so he's an innovator. He's what I would call a category designer. He created a whole new category of skis. He created a whole new uh, style of skiing that became, became known as free skiing, right? I think he was at least partially responsible for the giant explosion in backcountry skiing. Um, so I, I just, I love everything about him and I love how sort of, he was like a playful punk rocker. Like there was a big sort of finger in the air to the industry and to the sport who sort of rejected him. But at the same time, he was this um, cartoony sort of a jokester kind of a character as well. It was, you know, whether it was Shane or Glenn Peck before him, a whole like posse of Tahoe, right? Like this was the era, the 90s was like if you were in Jackson Hole or Whistler, you were a mountain man and you were very serious, 
very, very serious. And they would, those, those were badass athletes. Don't get me wrong. And Tahoe, we like, the point was like, be better and make fun of yourself along the way. And it like, in a sense that has ruined me forever because like, that's how I, you know what I mean? Like I, you're not really killing it unless you're sort of making fun of yourself at the same time. Um, and that's sort of, that's Shane's legacy more than anything for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, bless you for writing about Shane McConkie. Uh, he's just amazing. So this book, Stephen, you've already written one of the most important books of 2021. There's no question in my mind about it. I literally, I mean, I don't know if you can see my copy here and you know, it's, it's like full of this sort of shit all over. I I literally want to ask you about like two thirds of the sentences in this book. (laughs) Um, Honey, better make lunch. Yeah, grab us. Can somebody send out for some beers? We may be here for a while. This is an extraordinary piece of work. So can we just dive into it? Um, First of all, most people who write about this topic are full of shit, right? They, They write sort of pop psychology garbage. The level of research in this book is is truly extraordinary and you've been doing it for a long time now your connection between sports performance performance in business performance in life and the human body and the chemicals in the brain and and psychology and all that stuff interconnected i've never seen it you know i've written I've, i've i've read a lot on flow and things along these lines nobody has put this shit together the way you do so first off the top let me just thank you for this legendary book you're totally welcome. Thank you. Thanks for noting. There's 30 years of work in there, right? It's a lifetime's worth of research in neuroscience and psychology. Um, and it took seven years to get it, to be able to make it. It's, you know, it, I've, I wanted it to be fun, practical, and pragmatic for everybody, right? This is the book that everybody has really been sort of after me to write, especially since Rise of Superman. Like, can you please write a how-to? And okay, if I'm going to do it, I wanted it to, you know, to be great and compelling and useful. And damn, it's hard to write big ideas and be useful at the same time. I just have to say it took forever. Well, and to break new ground, right? I mean, you're connecting dots here that I think a few others have. So sort of for me, the first um, sort of thing that jumps is this um, this conversation that you have with us about neurobiology and peak performance. And um if I can just read you right off the front where you're talking about how biology scales, you write, um, personality doesn't scale, biology scales. What we mean is in the field of peak performance, too often someone figures out what works for them and then assumes it will work for others. It rarely does. More often, it backfires. And so can you tease out for me a little bit, Stephen, this sort of insight around, you know, personality versus biology as sort of the start point to this discussion around impossible and performance? For sure. The idea is quite simple, right? There are uh, the reason personality doesn't scale. The reason what works for me is probably not going to work for you is that there are really foundational aspects of peak performance. For example, where are you on the introversion extroversion scale? Are you shy? Are you outgoing? Right. 
or what, how active are your dopamine receptors? And as a result, how much do you enjoy risk and how much can you confront fear? Those things are either biologically hardwired or they're set up in very early childhood by early childhood experience. You can change them. Used to be believed these were traits and they were immutable and they were just locked in. We now know you can change them, but not quickly. Five, 10 years worth of work. There's slow change. They're things you have to really work on for a long period of time. Those things are, there's nothing you can do about those. If you try to figure out what works for me and use it to train you, you, if you're not exactly the same kind of person I am with the same personality traits, if this is not going to work, but underneath that one level down, there is a level of biology, a way the system has been designed to work. And that is the part that we all share, right? The stuff that evolution designed for all of us to share and that's why the book took so long to research, right? I always say that psychology, as incredibly useful as it has been, is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for the mechanism of neurobiology. So if you can get it back to neurobiology, that's the thing we all share. What I'm joking about... So, so Stephen, I, I hate to interrupt you, but I, it's so important. Can you just sort of uh, say what you just said again about the connection to neurobiology and maybe why, why that discovery, why that insight matters so much here? Well, neurobiology is mechanism, right? It is, it is the thing, the, the way our brains work and are designed to work, the big systems in the brain, the goal-directed system, the fears, the emotional system, the stuff is, it was evolutionary. There's a saying in evolutionary science, which is evolution is conservative by design. So when something works, it gets reused again and again and again and again. And the simple example is we process information in the brain with neurochemicals, dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, things like that. So do trees. Trees process information with the same neurochemicals that exist in humans. All life shares things that work. Right. This is why when they say you share 25 percent of your DNA with lettuce, it's the same principle. This is the same reason why. So if you can get move things back to the neurobiology, how the brain and the body actually are working, that's common between all of us. Or if I were to put it, you know, when I'm joking about this, I'm like, look, flow is the state of optimal performance. We're all hardwired for flow. It's a, it's a built in part of being human. But if I were to teach people right? I run the Flow Research Collective. We train a thousand people a month in flow. If I was training people in what worked for me, we would be all skiing through the trees at 40 miles an hour, listening to the Wu-Tang Clan, because that's what <laughs> works for me, right? I, <laughs> Can I listen not, to the Ramones, Stephen? Is that okay? I, by the way, I, I'm a huge punk fan, as you know, and it's just that I found that hip hop works better for skiing than, than punk. Uh, punk works for downhill mountain biking, I've discovered. <laughs> but skiing has got to be hip hop. I can't explain it. This is just, see, this is why what works for me is not going to work for you. My point exactly. Um, yeah. So um, that's, that's sort of the, that's the basic thesis in the book. And, you know, everybody in peak performance learns this the hard way as a general rule, meaning most people learn a little bit about peak performance and they start wanting to help their friends. And mostly they stop wanting to tell their friends how to live their lives. And, in my case, when I did that, before I learned that personality doesn't scale, I had a, I was writing for Psychology Today. I had a national bestsellers out on the topic. Like I had some weight behind my, my, and I like I was a disaster in my friends' lives. Like I put two people in the hospital, literally, 
because their risk tolerances were nowhere near what mine was. I nearly caused a divorce. My best friend in the world didn't speak to me for five years. And another really dear friend has still not spoken to me again. But other than that, you're an awesome guy to hang out with. Is that what you're telling me? I'm an awesome guy to hang out with. Yeah, it was a disaster in other people's lives when I like with, you know what I mean, with that stuff. And it was because I had come up in this world where guys like Shane McConkey were the normal. I was a journalist in my line of work. If you didn't nearly die once every three months, you weren't doing your job. And a lot of the guys I was, the men and women I was writing about were people like Chris Dome or Shane McConkey. And if they didn't die once a month, they weren't doing their jobs. I just thought this is, this was ever, my risk tolerances were so crazy. Of course I caused a disaster in people's lives. How long have you been friends with Laird Hamilton? Since I was 27 years old. Yeah. (laughs) That guy's not trying to do anything crazy to kill himself, is he? He would say no, he's not. But uh, I can see why other people feel differently. Yes. I remember this is a total diversion. uh, But, you know, I like to chase uh, rabbits down zebra holes. I remember he wrote a book years ago, and I I can't remember the title. It was sort of, you know, Laird's Insights on Life kind of a book. And um, one of the things that he said was, um, pay special attention to what things are called because they're probably called that for a reason. And I'll never forget the first time I went to uh, Fiji surfing, and um, there's a famous wave there called Cloud Break, which I am nowhere near qualified to surf. There is a picture of me surfing it on a very small day, but I don't surf it when it's real. Anyway, long story way longer, the inside of Cloud Break is called shish kebabs. And ever since I, I read that in his book, whether it's surfing or on a ski hill, you know, that you see these runs that are called like. If you live, if you, I live in the country and if you live in the country, you, t- he's so right. And you totally get this, right? Things are named what they actually are. It's, it's super literal, super literal, right? When, uh, when, uh, when they call Jaws, Jaws, the wave there, right. There's a reason, right. And. Um, and it's funny because, uh, you know, my wife and I run a dog sanctuary and we spend a lot of con- time in the backcountry with our dogs and we always are naming shit to give each other directions. Oh yeah. You go to the, the big thumb looking thing and then you take a left right? <laughs> like, and you know, sure enough, some of them are like, you know, coyote death ridge and you know, <laughs> things where bad things have happened. Right. Yeah. Anyway, I thought it was such a simple, but powerful <laughs> insight, but, totally right. but I digress. So part of what you're teaching us with this book, and I sort of say this as a sort of a, to bounce it off you, is that a big part of why we do what we do, a big part of our experience of life, our experience of ourselves and others, is a function of the chemicals in our brain and the things that we do to sort of uh, reinforce the production of I don't know if this is right. You'll tell me the good chemicals versus the bad chemicals, <laughs> but that, that performance having a happy life. And then of course, achieving impossible things, be they small eye or big eye, impossible things are tied to the sort of chemical cocktail that's cooking in our head. Well, for sure. When you're talking about things like motivation, uh, which is a catch all term, right? For a bunch of stuff or flow, um, neurochemicals are a huge part of it. Obviously, when you're talking about brain activity, you're talking about neurochemistry, neuroelectricity, right? The brain waves, um, neural anatomy, where things are taking place in networks. Very rarely things take place in one spot. So there's, right, those are all the four things. But 
neurochemicals, when it comes to reward chemicals, and you're totally, they're called reward chemicals. These are chemicals that reward behavior that it some helped us survive. And so a lot of, when I say a lot of peak performance, most of peak performance is getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. We're built to tackle certain kinds of challenges in certain ways. And we've got a lot of chemistry to back us up. And the whole point of that, let's, let's take that out of metaphor and into something a little more concrete. So let's just start with the, a motivation for a second um, to make this concrete. The big deal about one of the big deals about peak performance and one of the reasons my book is possible is there aren't that many levers to work with. If you think about sort of what the, the toolkit, right, you have focus, what you pay attention to or what you ignore, and you have your actions. And if you can pay, if you put focus and action on the same thing over and over and over again, you get a habit. And that's essentially the foundational toolkit for peak performance. It's just that simple. And the interesting thing is action, if you're learning something, if you're doing something, there are ways to do it, it more efficiently. There's craft tips and techniques and things along those lines. But as a general rule, the thing is the thing. And like, if you're going to go bowling, I don't care how good you are in the world, you're still going to have to go bowling, right? It's the energy that so where, where's the big lever that you can reach for? It's focus and attention. So what's the big deal about, let's, internal motivators. Curiosity is our first internal motivator. It's our first basic motivator. What is curiosity? Neurochemically, it's a little bit of dopamine and a little bit of norepinephrine. These are both pleasure chemicals. They reinforce when they're in our system. We're excited. We're interested. The thing that's in front of us is has our attention. Think about how much energy you spend paying attention to something you're not into versus something you're a little bit curious about. The big deal about motivation is it gives you focus for free. So you get one half of the performance equation basically for free without having to burn all this energy. And think about the brain for a second. It's a huge energy hog. It's 2% of your mass. It uses 25% of your energy at rest. So when you're actually engaged in something, it's more than that. And a lot of that is going to, what am I focusing on? What am I tuning out? So if we get focus for free, it's a big deal from a performance standpoint. So um, motivation gives us focus for free. Motivation. And when we're if intrinsic motivation, so curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, which is the desire to like steer your own ship and mastery, which is the desire to get better and better at the things we do. Um, they, they're designed, A, to work in a specific sequence, but all of them give us focus for free. Think about, so passion is a lot. Uh, literally, if you start with the neurochemicals that we were talking about, dopamine, norepinephrine, and you crank up the crank and you get a whole lot more of them, you get passion, romantic love. Think about the first time you fell in love, how much attention you were paying to that other person. It was right. You couldn't stop thinking about them. That's all for free, not hard work. The whole point about human biology and human performance in the system is you get farther, faster with less work. That's the real point. Like, why do you want to do this? Because you're built to go this way. And, you know, the, the way I always explain it, I'm like, look, we are hardwired for extraordinary. And which is one of the surprising things about being human that most people don't realize. And to take it a step farther, 
not going big is actually bad for us. And that's a, that's an equally important point here. If you look at like, what are we talking about? We've been talking about motivation. Let's stay right there. Intrinsic motivation, curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, mastery. And then by the way, when you get all those things right, you get a lot more flow. That's not important here. Depression, which is at an epidemic proportion and anxiety, epidemic proportion. Somebody is killing themselves once every 12 seconds in the world today. It's like these are, we've never seen anything like it. And there are eight known causes of depression, major causes, well accepted, widely agreed upon. Two of them are the one that gets all the run. One is um, genetics. I can't make enough serotonin. I can't make enough happy drugs. The other is severe trauma. And yet as a general rule, genetics alone can't cause depression. And we know this. There's never more than 50% of the equation. And trauma, the vast majority of the time when we encounter traumatic events, it leads to post-traumatic growth. It's a good thing, not a bad thing. It's hard during the moment, but it leads someplace good. The other six major causes of depression, they're all things about getting our biology wrong or our motivation wrong. For example, lack of meaningful work is one of the largest causes of depression in the world. What does that mean? Actually, in the real world, it's work that I'm not curious about that I'm not passionate about, that isn't aligned my values and purpose, that I don't have the autonomy to pursue in the way that I want to pursue, and that does not offer me the opportunity for skills mastery and does not produce flow. That is literally what we're talking about by lack of meaningful work. And it's literally not getting, not using your biology the way it's been designed to be used. So we're built to go big and not going big is bad for us. And that's the like, yeah, we get focused for free and all like, yes, there's a lot, there's a lot there, but as you dig one level deeper. It's this shocking idea that's very true. Um, and it's right there in the data. And we don't often talk about it out loud. That was great. And it, it comes pounding through in your book. And I, I, I know it comes shining through in your book that way, because it comes out of you that way. There's so much to pop the hood on here. So, the first time I I, I, heard, I don't know if I heard you say it on your podcast or in the book, but the first time I heard it from you, that not going big is bad for us. I thought about my own life, and I thought about many of the lives around me, and I, I don't know that I've ever heard anybody quite say it that way, the way you did, and of course you have this research-based brain science context that all of these uh, insights you you have sit inside of. So this is not some mumbo jumbo from some self-help, you know, uh, charlatan. Anyway, long story longer, Stephen, when you when I heard you say it, I thought, holy shit, is that ever right? But I've, I've been dying to spend time with you to ask you, okay, so so pop the hood on that some more for me, please. Why is that true? This is the easiest way because we. And this is something everybody's going to get immediately. Think about all the stuff in your own life that really made a difference in your life. Really like, wow, this is the thing and it changed a lot of stuff. And it's the thing that I'm proudest of, right? The four or five or six things. I've been asking people this question out loud for 30 years and not once has anybody been like, I've gotten a oh, I won the lotto or I got lucky. It's never what, it's never the lucky things. 
the easy things that people tell you. It's the, oh my God, I had to pay my way through college and it was totally impossible. I didn't know how I was going to do it. I couldn't believe it. I had to work so goddamn hard, right? They had like my experience in grad school. I worked three jobs to get through grad school, right? This is like, you know, that's when you're doing that, it's an, it's an insane thing to try to do. Um, and it doesn't feel like it's at all possible. And, you know, you, you sweat. I didn't sleep for four years or something like that, right? Everybody says that over and over and over again. So one, we know this intuitively about ourselves. It, they don't. They don't say it's the day my parents gave me the two hundred and fifty million dollar inheritance. They don't it's say not, that. Nobody ever says that, right? Nobody. You never get the I got lucky story. You got the, um, and even you know it's funny because I've talked to people about their marriages, and nobody. Very, I mean, people say, oh, yeah, I had a random thing. I showed up at a party, right, right? And But if you drink, dig, dig deeper into that, it's never the, like, they're not proud of the, like, oh, I, I, you know, I managed to pick up a girl or a guy at a party. They're proud of the fact that they spent 10 years fighting the hard fight of staying together as a couple, right? Marriages are impossibly difficult things to do, to do well and to do right, and that's what people are actually proud of is, you know, that we stuck together and stayed together and worked through all this stuff for 10 years. It's not that I showed up at the party and got lucky. It's the like, you know, it's the actual thing. And we all know this. It's the stuff we've, we value. And I, you know, your internal signals are a really good signal to your, like, what's going on, right? Like we're wired to work a certain way and the body lets us know when we're doing it the right way. Yeah, it, it the, the the reward systems are are palpable. I, I also want to sort of um, in in Rise of Superman, you, you you went here, and of course you go back here. Intrinsic, extrinsic, and it, clearly there's a satisfaction with the intrinsic that is that feels at least to me. I only know my own experience. You, you're you're the master in terms of studying this stuff. The intrinsic things, the things that you do not because anybody pays you or because there's any reward. You know, it's like for me, surfing is a great example. Nobody. And I mean, fucking nobody, Stephen watches me surf. Nobody, maybe a buddy in the water. If he or she is not on a wave. Sure. But like, that's it. My mother doesn't want to watch me surf. Like nobody, never mind, pay me to do it or any of that. And, and the same would be true for skiing. And you know what it's like. I don't have to tell you. When you go have a great ski day and powder in the trees, even one run, you can be stoked for a week. So there's a special nature to the intrinsic. However, as human beings, we tend to need validation. And so there's also something powerful about the extrinsic. But I see some negatives potentially with the extrinsic that I don't see with the intrinsic. But I want to hear how you think about both and sort of um, how they come together in all of this. Extrinsic motivators, stuff outside ourselves, money, sex, fame. Um, these are incredibly potent motivators. We're wired to want them, right? They're, 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 we started with the idea that evolution, so you, you have to, we're shaped by evolution. Evolution is predominantly shaped by scarcity of resources. So when you talk about human motivation, right? You're talking about anything. We're motivated to do anything that helps us get more resources. Now, mates are a resource. Money is a resource. The reason that we're attracted to fame is not the fame itself. It's because fame comes with money and sex, right, which are resources. But what the research shows 
this is not my work. This is Daniel Kahneman's work. And what Danny's work shows is that extrinsic motivators are very powerful. But if your interest is in peak human performance, they only work up to a certain point, which is we've paid and we have earned enough money for basic resources and we have a little left over for fun. In fact, if you go into companies and they try to motivate employees, you can motivate employees with money up to about $75,000, a year in an American economy. And this was about 10 years ago when you did it. So maybe those numbers are a little off. But then if you really want to increase productivity or performance or worker engagement or any of that stuff, you have to give them intrinsic motivators. You have to give them work they're curious about, work that aligns with passion and purpose, work that they can pursue with autonomy, um, and work where there's a chance for mastery to get better and better at the things they're doing, and work that produces flow. That's how you motivate employees from that point on. You can't use the externals anymore. This isn't to say that, like, look, I made over $75,000 a year and didn't change the fact that I still wanted a house and I was motivated to go, right? Like, yes, of course, there that stuff is there. But from a peak performance perspective, once – and you just got to think about that from an evolutionary perspective, right? You didn't – external stuff – drove us until we got it right and we could feed ourselves we could feed our family we could store a little for the winter like right and then oh we've got our food what do we really need well we really need another hunting ground so i'm curious about what's over that hill or i'm passionate enough to go explore to find more resources for my tribe right like literally those were hardwired from an evolutionary like way back millions of years ago that's when this blueprint got laid down and it's still in us, right? We have uh, local and linear brains in a global and exponential world. So a lot of the systems could, that we're Could taking, you just say that again, Stephen? Yeah. It's a, so we have local and linear brains. The, uh, the human brain evolved in an environment that was local, meaning everything we dealt with was about a day's walk away. And linear, meaning the rate of change was really slow. So the, your great-great-grandfather's life and your his great, 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 great granddaughter's life, they were roughly the same. Not much change between centuries, right? Today, we live in a world that's global, right? It happens in China. We hear about it in America. Seconds later, our computers hear about it milliseconds later. Exponential, meaning forget about the difference between great grandpa and great granddaughter, like this week to next, month to month, right? Crazy, um, incredible things can happen very, very quickly. And the human brain was not, we didn't evolve to process things at this speed or this scale. So bi biologically, we're not uh, tuned to iPhones. And no, it's actually uh, one of the problems that a lot of people have. This is not actually in this book, but it's in uh, abundance of a couple of my other books. So here's a crazy thing. Back when the era, the brain evolved, every threat we dealt with was like a tiger in the bush. It was an immediate threat. So the tiger is either in the bush and it's chasing you or it's gone and you're safe. Today, we live in a world filled with probabilistic threats. The economy might nosedive. Terrorists might attack. A new pandemic might show up and be worse. Right? Like all those things. And the problem is the brain literally doesn't turn off until the danger is gone completely. It's hardwired not to shut off the threat signal until the day. And probabilistic dangers are never gone completely. So one of the reasons we have record levels of anxiety in society right now is that we're living in a world with a lot of probabilistic dangers. And so you now have to take active steps 
to calm down your nervous system because it won't shut down on its own because it will always find something to scare it. And is, uh, excuse my ignorance of biology, is cortisol one of the things that's firing here in a way that it didn't used to? Is that an example of what's happening? Cortis- in certain- yeah, cor- cortisol is a stress hormone. It gets locked. Yeah, we, we're, we're producing too much cortisol and too much norepinephrine. I said curiosity is norepinephrine. It is a little bit. A little bit more, you get passion. I crank it up even more. You get anxiety and terror and panic. So it's the same system. In fact, it's so much the same system that certain mammals, cows, for example, cannot feel curiosity and anxiety at the same time. So when they're doing like animal uh, welfare stuff, right, in, in barnyards, say they're, uh, they're bringing the cows into a barn to get a, to get a medical treatment, for example, which is, and they got to put them all together and put them into a, a holding pen. They scares the animals a lot and they don't want to stress the animals out. So they find that if they put something up that makes them curious, that it will de-stress them. Most humans can feel curiosity and anxiety at the same time, but it's very easy. In the book, I talk about reframing, cognitive reframing. That is a a technique for turning anxiety into excitement because it's the same, it's the same chemical and it's very easy to do. Again, an example of getting your biology to work for you rather than against you. We, you know, we're plagued by anxiety and yet we're hardwired to turn anxiety into excitement very, very easily just with the right tools. And is that how we can turn a pandemic into an opportunity and, 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 and have that not be sort of whipped cream on dog shit that if we change our mindset about something? Yeah, I mean, we, we did. I mean, you know, I, I this is the other half of my work, which is more on technology than human capability. But we have turned the pandemic into the most astounding opportunity. We haven't, it hasn't come home to roost yet. What people don't get, there are over 120 different cures, vaccines, et cetera, in, in the pipeline now, you know, coming online. Average time to cure a vaccine is five years. Average cost, $10 billion, billion, take your pick, depending on whose numbers you're going by. The fact that we have 120 of them and like nothing like this has ever happened in the history of the world and is also the stuff that's just downstream because we had to make huge advances in AI, huge advances in all kinds of things to get those vaccines. So that's vaccines are where we are now, but this is all going to flood into healthcare, for example. And then what's just downstream from drug discovery, food discovery. Same technologies. So, like, there's all these industries where I've been speaking to leaders of industry, and I'm like, you don't get it. Like, yes, this 2020 was an absolute ass kicking. We all got our ass kicked in 2020. It was, it was, it, it's been, it's been very, very difficult for everybody. But like, we can come roaring back um, in ways that that people aren't anticipating because they're not seeing what's just downstream from all this stuff that we've had to figure out. So, I'm yes. actually really excited about where it's going. Where it's going. Yes. And I want to circle back and maybe connect a dot and see if I'm connecting it um, the way you might. If you take a look at the um, uh, the impossible way in which um, this new vaccine was developed and it's now the other thing uh, I find uh, almost equally fascinating, Stephen, is um, the way it's being rolled out. It's the greatest product rollout in history. It's, it's, it's the greatest logistical challenge in history. The healthcare industry and how it's having to adapt and change. Like it, so to me, the rollout of it and making it work for all of us in the world is, is almost as equally as fascinating as how we got there uh, with the vaccine itself. But all that said, 
you know, I've heard you talk about and write about Roger Bannister breaking the four minute mile and how everybody said that was physically impossible for the human body. And I don't have the stat off the top of my head. Maybe you do. But after he did that, the year after, how many people did it? Yeah. it's, it's So you're talking about the Bannister effect, right? And yeah. It took, the, you got to take it a step farther because it took forever for Bannister. Like if you look at mile times, they drop a second, a decade, basically, for like the 70 years leading up to 1954. I think 1954 is the right. I think I got the year right. It's either 53 or 54. Um, and uh, then Bannister does it. And three weeks later, somebody beats his record. And three months later, somebody beats that record. Within five years, a teenager's done it. And the question you just like, how the hell is that possible? Right. The physical challenge hasn't changed. It took us 70 years to get that fast for one person to get that fast. And suddenly, you know, you had half a dozen uh, and this is known as the banister effect. And the dramatic way to say it is we have to believe the impossible is possible before it becomes possible for us. And what it really is, is an incredibly tight coupling sort of between the visual system and the way the human brain is dominated by vision. 30% of the neurons in your brain are about vision and physiology. So you literally have to be able to imagine yourself physically doing the thing that you can't before your brain can start to put it together on how you can you can do it. It has to do with learning and a whole bunch of things and it's neat um and that's another reason you know i wrote a book called the art of impossible i you know we are not only are we are we hardwired to go big you have to believe you know what i mean most people the reason most people don't chase their dreams is because they don't know they can catch them it's just that simple right like that there's nothing fancy around that like we don't go after stuff that feels like it's going to be Mount Everest and an impossible Mount Everest for us. And um, that's actually kind of backwards to how the system is designed to work. So a ton there, Stephen. But to go back for a sec to um, the C-19 uh, vaccines. So do you, are you saying, it sounds like you are. Uh, yeah, I got two for that, you. On the, yeah, that, yeah, this me, is the banister okay. effect yeah. is now going to happen with vaccines and potentially other various kinds of medical technologies and research. Is that, is that what we're going to see now, do you think? I th- I'm so yes on the vaccine. So a couple things on this front, just because it's might as well give people some some actual good news about this stuff because we've had such an ass kicking of a year. The truth of the matter is, pan- most pandemics, and I'm not talking about like if we get aerosolized Ebola, like that's a different nightmare, right? But like let's worst case scenarios aside. From a technological. Don't tell me about that. I got enough cortisol going right now, Steve. (laughs) But no, literally, from a technological standpoint, pandemics are actually a very, like, we are, this is a danger that we are facing that is going to last 10 to 15 years and then it's gone from the earth. And what I mean by that is every end of the medical treatment train is being invented. We've got whole companies making biosniffers, they sniff the air. These are real. They exist. David Sinclair's lab at Harvard is making them. If you want to look that up already, they sniff the air. So you can put them anywhere in public. You walk by, they sniff the air as you walk by. And if they detect anything strange, it immediately gets uploaded to a diagnostic AI in the cloud. They will analyze the DNA of the virus, the bacteria, anything foreign that was detected. If it's a new pathogen, they will automatically start 
hunting for and making cures. Like before we've even, before anybody, a human being has even been alerted to the fact that there could be a problem, you could already have cures starting. And on and on and on and on. My point is that where technology is right now, we can sort of surround these kinds of problems in a, a decade. The one that I'm really excited Bannister effect wise is that we saw for the first time really since the 90s, we came up against climate change. We all stayed home for two months and we dented climate change. It wasn't a huge dent, but this was this impossible challenge that no, we haven't had a freaking win unless you're tracking the solar industry, right? Unless you're tracking key, key indicators, um, you don't think what, there's any good news against climate change, let alone a banister effect. And yet in two months, we shut it down and we, we made an actual dent in climate change. It was the first time an entire generation, because the last time this happened was the ozone hole in the 90s, right? When we detected the ozone hole and we phased out uh, hydrofluorocarbons and we closed it, basically. It took 20 years, but, you know, it's pretty much gone at this point. And That's that why we don't have Freon anymore. Is exactly. that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And by the way, and I'm glad we did it, but a air conditioner in your car that had Freon in it, that got your ass cold fast on the it, hottest day. It, it, we, <laughs> the new shit isn't as effective, but I'll take the environment, but I digress. <laughs> okay, you're right. The cars are not as cold as they used to be. You are, you're <laughs> I'll take right. it. I'm not I, complaining. Yeah, I just, you're, you're Freon right. was awesome for the application. Yeah. I, it I, had horrible I, implications. I, you know, but I like things like rain and snow and I don't, you know, I don't know. And animals. animals. Yeah. <laughs> I like the but ocean I, I, being where it's supposed yeah, to be. <laughs> exactly. But I hear you. Okay. I, I knocked us off track, <laughs> but what you're saying is you think we're 15 years away from essentially a grouping of technologies coming together. That means that viruses well, are gone. I, it's not that they're gone. Um, but it does mean that I think this kind of pandemic um, is a lot like, and we're a lot less vulnerable when we get blockchain underneath all aspects of our tr supply chain. Also, a lot of the problems that we're seeing, right? That's what, I mean, you're watching the rollout of, of right, these global rollouts. These are new, whole brand new logistics supply chains. Like all this stuff is a reinvention of the possible. And you know, in, in my last book, The Future is Faster Than You Think, we talk about every aspect of the medical treatment train from diagnostics on the front end to drug discovery on the back is being completely reinvented and democratized, right? Demonetized. The money's coming out of it. It's getting cheaper and more affordable to everybody globally. Democratized. This stuff is going everywhere. And, you know, the, the classic example is surgical robots, really fancy, cool technology. I had hernia surgery a couple of years ago. It was performed by a Da Vinci robot, right? Because um, it's very cutting edge, less wounding, blah, blah, blah. And there are now surgical robots, you know, in most major Western theaters. But this year, Johnson & Johnson teamed up with uh, Alphabet, Google's parent company, and they created Verb Surgical to democratize surgical robotics globally. And they're, you know, they've already got products in the market. I think actually Johnson & Johnson bought out Alphabet and took the company back a little while ago. I think I saw. Um, but my point is, even that stuff is we're seeing being reinvented. So if you think about something simple that uh, certainly I can relate to, uh, knowing that, you know, the plane flies itself for a lot of the flight and during critical moments, particularly, of course, takeoff and landing, 
the pilot and co-pilot are, are engaged. Um, but um, the plane essentially flies itself. And my understanding is even today with uh, takeoffs and landings, it's not like it was as recently as 15 or 20 years ago. There's more technology inside of that. And of course, we're get, people are trying to get us to a, autonomous vehicles and blah, blah, blah. And so are we at a point, Stephen, where you think a surgeon, when she's you know, doing a procedure, some meaningful part of that procedure won't be actually done by her. She'll be essentially, I don't know, supervising a robot. Well, that, well that's already what, I mean, that's essentially what's going on. The Da Vinci surgical robot, there's a surgeon, right? But their, their motions are mediated by robots because the, the robots are much more precise. I don't think it's going to be the kick the doctors out of the hospital. Like I know people are really scared about technological unemployment and things along those lines, but the data is pretty overwhelming that the biggest leverage is always human and AI working together. It's never just AI robot alone. It doesn't, in fact, uh, BMW is a great story. They got inspired by Tesla, both Tesla and BMW, totally robotic factories, few people if possible, and productivity tanked in both cases. And they had to reintroduce humans back into the equation. And then it was human AI together. That seems to give us the most value right now. Well, and you know, that whole thing about bless him, Andrew Yang and the, the, the robots and AI are going to take over and we need a universal basic income because nobody's going to have any jobs and all this stuff. I just look at it and go, I don't know. You looked at, you look back on history. The Luddites are always wrong from the first creation of a tool by a human being through to now, human beings create tools. And when they do, uh, life on the planet for human beings generally gets a lot better. <laughs> I agree with that. I agree with that completely. So um, there's sort of a couple of key areas here that you, you fuse together in the book. Motivation, learning, creativity, and flow. And then you bring us through them and sort of bring, bring it all together. So uh, um, why are those the sort of the, the pillars or the anchors for um, the, both the research and then the insights um, in the book? So it starts with a really simple yet sort of complicated question that I was looking at. It starts with flow, right? And what is flow good for? Scientists, we've spent 30 years trying to figure out what does flow is optimal performance so what gets optimized. And the list is really weird. The list is motivation and productivity. It flow accelerates, amplifies learning. It massively increases all aspects of creative problem solving. Um, it increases empathy, environmental awareness. On the physical side, it's strength, stamina, fast twitch muscle response, and it deadens pain. A couple other things in there that also, uh, that also go up. Empathy, environmental awareness, a couple other things. And the question you got to ask is, what the hell? Like, why would one state of consciousness, right, optimize? What are these things? And the answer we gave it earlier is we are shaped by evolution. Evolution, the principal driver for evolution is scarcity, scarcity of resources. And so when resources are scarce, you have two options. You can fight over dwindling resources. Or you can get creative, get collaborative, get cooperative, and make new resources, right? And so what gets optimized by flow? Everything we need to fight or flee, right, to, of that side of the equation, everything we need 
to get exploratory, get innovative, get cooperative, get crazy, make new resources. That's the toolkit. So when you're talking about human peak performance, that's the suite. And it is literally all those skills. And the way I always explain it is it's from a common sense point of view, it's easy to understand. Motivation gets us into the game, right? That's where the book starts. It then goes into goals because once you're in the game, you have to, where am I going? Oh, yeah, you need goals, right? And there's three levels of goals that you got to set. And then once you've got goals, you need grit. Why? Because motivation is not always going to be there. It's going to run out, right? So then you need grit. And then you need learning because it allows you to continue to play. And finally, especially if you're going for after high, hard challenges like impossible stuff, you need creativity to steer, right? Like if you're trying to go after any high, hard challenge where there's no obvious way to get from point A to point B, creativity is how you steer and then flow. It's how you turbo boost the entire thing, right? That's the entire toolkit. That's like literally that's human peak performance because that's the, that's what evolution is optimized for. So that's everything we have to work with. And they're all designed to work together in an order in a system, which is the, is the cool news. And as you lay that out, that quote unquote system in the book, essentially, and this is what I love, and this maybe is what you wanted to teach us about um, biology scales and personality doesn't. What you're teaching here is essentially how to do things, how to think about things in a way that fires the appropriate set of chemical reactions that reinforces my biology, that drives me to the direction of producing small eye and potentially big eye impossible things. Did I get that close to right? Or what did I yeah. miss? Yeah, no, Am I, I connecting mean, like, the dots, yeah, Stephen? I mean, yeah, for sure. Like, let me give you a really classic example. So flow is a huge neurochemical dump. You get all five or six of the brain's major pleasure chemicals. Dopamine. It's the mother load, is it not? It's the mother load. So let's talk about it, learning for a second. So what is learning, right? Learning is literally the more neurochemicals that show up during the experience, the better chance that experience will move from short-term holding into long-term storage, right? Curiosity, when you have a little bit of norepinephrine and a little bit of dopamine, you're, it's actually the ready conditions for learning. When your brain wants to learn, whenever we encounter a salient stimuli, anything novel, oh, the first thing that happens is the brain releases a little bit of norepinephrine. Why? Because maybe you want to remember that for later. Happens automatically. You're not trying to remember the thing, your brain is doing it automatically. The more neurochemicals, the better that happens. In so flow, you get the memory for free, so to speak? Memory <laughs> for free is my point. It's exactly right. Flow is a 240, this is the Department of Defense's numbers on studies they were running, but soldiers in flow were learning 240% faster than normal skills acquisition. That's pretty amazing. And all of it, here's the key part. They're still doing... Like if you take a dude in flow and you take somebody out of flow and you teach them how to shoot a handgun, they're doing the same amount of work. The work is not changing. The person in flow is going to learn it 240 times percent faster just based on their neurochemistry. So you're still going to have to do the same thing, right? So like one way or another, the you want it, but if you can figure out how do I do this in flow, you're going to only have to learn it once. It's, it's such a great set of insights. The other interesting thing to me about flow is, I'll speak from my own experience, I disappear for myself 
in flow. In other words, well, everybody you know, does. Diminishment of self is one of the core characteristics of the experience. And, and it's know, we, a, this transcending of self thing is really powerful. Like I think about, you know, you can be in flow reading a book. I was in flow reading your book. I mean, I was every sentence going, holy fuck, ask him about that. And that's unbelievable and underlining and writing. And, you know, and so when you engage with something that you're curious about, and as a young man, I learned it was okay to write in, in books. And as a dyslexic, that changed everything for me because a book is a thing I play with now, not some you know, uh, uh, sacred thing in a library. Anyway, bottom line is I disappear reading your book. Now it's, it, 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 you disappear differently skiing in pow or riding a great wave, but it's, they're very similar, um, components, components to it. And that's why works ceases being work. Right. And, and school learning, which may sound like a bummer to some, when it feels a lot more like play, it, it, the whole thing goes away. And so this whole notion of flow, most of our lives are not oriented around it, though. Our workplaces aren't set up to create flow and some of our family lives and homes aren't set up for it. It's like, I, I know this is a huge part of your life's work, but the thing I've been dying to ask you about this, the flow component is so much is now known about it. And yet so few people seem to understand any of this stuff (laughs) well it's i mean it's interesting because you know we had a really hard time training a bit in flow up until around 2000 and well 2005 six or because people were still trying to train people from the psychology and as i said when we started it's metaphor it's not it wasn't like it's very hard to train flow from the psychology once you get to the neurobiology you know, we train about a thousand people a month and we measure flow pre and post with the standard psychometric instruments. And we see on average a 70 to 80% boost in flow. It is really trainable from the neurobiology. That said, a lot of corporations, a lot of organizations are built on principles from an earlier century, right? And we are starting to see more flow principles get adopted into the workplace for sure. Um, at a higher and higher level. And I see this because I know which organizations my company is working with and who we're training. And um, I can tell you it is, you know, it's way more mainstream. You know what I mean? Like when, when I first wrote Rise of Superman, the military called very quickly, the marketing teams called the advertising marketers. They saw the advantage right away in the military and Wall Street. Those were the three groups of people I talked to almost immediately. Athletes came in sort of next. And but now, I mean, you know, I it is it is not unusual that, you know, this week I spoke to a group of Red Bull athletes, big surprise there. And I also spoke to a bank, one of the major big five banks in the world, and talked to a senior leadership team there. That's what is the difference now. Banks are like the most conservative business organization you could possibly imagine right and they're interested in this stuff now so you're seeing it but you are right we um there's a lot of stuff we've done wrong from a flow perspective and there's a lot left to learn i always say that if you're working on individual performance we're good once you get to organizational performance we started out with the idea that biology scales right That's an individual thing. What is the biology of an organization? 
That's interesting. Now, people in the Flow Research Collective, I'm thinking uh, uh, one of the uh, very talented psychologists that I work with, Clara Sarah, um, she likes to say that complexity science gives us the biology of an organization. <laughs> and she may be very right. I think she probably is. But what does that actually look like and how does that work and can we train from it? It's a little trickier, which is not to say that we can't train up organizations. It's that what I've found is that every organization is kind of individual and you have to work with them a little bit more hands-on to figure out exactly what is going to work with their biology. It's a little, it's a little, I don't think it's a, you know, with, with art and possible, it's almost like one size fits all with that, the stuff that's in there. And that's true for all the individuals in an organization but it gets a little complicated when they start working together. So if I was, um, you know, a CEO or a head of HR or even a department head uh, of a business, and I said, hey, Stephen, you know, I just read your book, Art of the Impossible, and I want to create a culture where people uh, access these ideas more such that there are more people working in flow more often and so that we as an organization can get busy on a lot more small eye impossibles and hopefully lead up to a couple of big eye impossibles over time. Oh, yeah. the, the, this is a no. Yes. The answer is yes. That's easy. you get that call. Right. You get oh, that yeah. email. I, right? get that, I get that. We get that call all the time. We put put organizations through zero to dangerous, which is our flagship uh, kind of flow peak performance training. And it it's deadly effective. But you're talking about. So let, let's simple example. Um, any company that has an open office plan, simple example, we know flow demands complete concentration. And if it's group flow, it demands complete concentration from the group. So in either case, you need to be able to wall yourself off or wall the team off from the rest of the organization. If you have an open office plan, you have an office plan that will block flow. So what do you do in that case? Well, we work all those. They, everybody makes these isolated pod phone booth things right now. So you have to import a bunch of those into your, it's not like the fixes are, are there's not, you know what I mean? They're, it's not hard to change up some of the office furniture for it. It's just that we, um, in our attempts to kind of do things more collaboratively, we've sort of gotten away from how our biology is designed to work a little bit. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? So we've, I mean, the open office thing really came about in the uh, mid to later 90s with the dot-com bubble. And so we've now been living over 25 years-ish, plus or minus, in a work environment where none of us can concentrate and get any fucking thing done because we're not in flow. Is that what you just told me? <laughs> Basically, yeah. I mean, yeah, honest to God. Um, and I honestly think little carols, those office cubicles, as long as you can hear other, like if there's other people and you can, you know what I mean? I don't even think those are properly designed. Um, no, I think, uh, I think we'll be, re I mean, office redesign is a really exciting thing right now anyways, in a post COVID world. Cause you know, I'm in conversations where everybody sort of knows that the, at the center of like bio sniffers, we work and flow science is the office of tomorrow right? That when you put those things together, when you have a pandemic proof kind of co-working space that is designed for a high flow environment for teams of all sizes, from individual up to group, that's going to be the future of work. 
um, for sure, and of office design. And I've been in uh, in the past six months a bunch of those discussions with you know really top level real estate people. It's it's super interesting to watch. You know, some people are getting their ass kicked in commercial real estate, of course, but a whole other segment is reinvent is 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 now like okay, we can now take this as an opportunity to reinvent commercial real estate, which hasn't seen a major reinvention in a long time. So that's kind of neat. So again, uh, you know, what looks like a disaster and maybe is a disaster then turns into an opportunity. I agree with that. To create a more human, flow-oriented, therefore more creative, more innovative, uh, more productive, more personally satisfying work environment. Because I don't know, did anybody like those cubes? Does anybody like that? Yeah, who, nobody likes those cubes. Nobody right? fucking yeah. likes that. Yeah. Now, I want to circle back to the beginning of the book where you're talking about sort of human nature and the biology and scarcity versus uh, I can, I make a decision to fight over scarcity or I make a decision to collaborate, innovate and create abundance. Could you sort of pop the hood a little more for me, Stephen, on that insight? Well, I, so it's, it's essentially this. I mean, it's the same thing we talked about already, which is that, you know, evolution shaped us, uh, shaped human beings to react to scarcity and you can either fight or flee, right? Those are your choices to avoid becoming somebody else's resources or to fight over dwindling resources, or you get creative, get cooperative and band together and make new resources. And almost everything we talk about human performance is meant to solve those problems. And so, you know, it strikes me that uh, entrepreneurs, uh, innovators of various types, whether it's, uh, you know, Shane McConkie or, or Pablo Picasso as an artist, the dot I connect, and I want to check this out with you, is that people who are creators um, are in that mindset of we can cr- we can create abundance, that this idea that there are only so many bananas in the world and we got to fight over, we're a bunch of monkeys fighting over bananas as opposed to, well, I understand, you know, I'm not an idiot and I, I, I get basics of Adam Smith and economics and, and soybeans and, you know, the, the commodities and shit. But at the same time, it, look around. I mean, human beings create abundance all the time. And so um, I, I guess my question is, are people whose mindset is more scarcity oriented, can they be taught to have more of a creation, innovation, and therefore abundance mindset? So you're asking from a real, like from a, the way I would think about that question is twofold. One is creativity, a, a trainable skill. And the answer is yes. Um it was no much in the way that flow wasn't a trainable skill. Creativity is really fucking hard to train if you're trying to come from the psychology, right? I need you to think differently. What you need me to, uh, um, right? But when you're coming from the neurobiology and you realize that wait, creativity isn't actually necessarily a skill set. It's more of a state of consciousness. Literally, it's a way of the brain processing information etc etc and there's ways to amplify that that's very trainable and the second half of that question is is optimism trainable right and that answer is also yes right it's also in the book as well like if you're interested in optimism the data is really clear daily gratitude practice quickest way quickest way to get optimistic is daily gratitude practice um because all you're doing is pointing out to the brain the good things that are already real in your life Right, your brain's got a great bullshit detector, which is why affirmations doesn't don't work. But gratitude works because you know when you wake up and you're like, 
I am so happy and grateful that this morning I woke up and I'm alive and I can, you know, use my mouth hole to form words, right? Well, those things are true, right? So your brain goes, oh, well, it's better than better than you thought. And it starts tilting your negativity bias. You start taking in more positive information. So those are very, very, very trainable skills. And when it comes to these questions of abundance, I think as a general rule, um, most people are pretty smart and they just haven't like it's hard. Sometimes you know, Dave Foster Wallace brilliantly said, sometimes the most obvious and important realities are the hardest to see or talk about. And, you know, for, you know, an example is um, this is my smartphone. There's a million dollars worth of 1980s technology in here that I get for free. Most people don't realize it. They don't go, oh, wow, I don't need an encyclopedia anymore. I don't need a music player, a stereo. Do you remember how, I'm looking at your wall of music behind you. I'm sure you used to have a Bang & All Sin system that was probably a good ten dollars to $15,000 in subwoofers and woofers and all the, right, blah, blah, blah. Now you got a fucking smartphone and maybe a pair of earplugs. It's so, right? it's so funny you're saying this just the other night. Um, it was, you know, past, past, uh, sundown and my wife, Carrie says, Oh, you know, c- could you go, um, could you go get the mail? And, uh, we're on a flag lot. So we have a long driveway. And, uh, I was like, yeah, w- you know, where's a flashlight? And she's like, just use your phone. Exactly. We used to have right? and I was like, oh yeah, duh. My, and, and I had this little moment like you're describing, which is like, holy fuck, this thing does everything. <laughs> When Peter Diamandis and I wrote Abundance, we, uh, this was, so this was 2011. We did a calculation then that showed there was a million and a half dollars worth of 1980s technology in your smartphone. And this was nine years ago, right? And, you know, imagine what's, we've gone from like nine years ago, we had kind of mediocre Kodak cameras in our smartphones. Now we've got Hasselblads, Right. The better, better than anything else in the world is the camera on your phone at this point or the, the movie cameras. People, when I, I grew up, a lot of my friends were filmmakers in the 90s and the 80s and the 90s. And they came out of film school. And, um, and a lot of them were documentary filmmakers came out of the Stanford program because I was in California at the time. And, uh, oh, my God, film was so expensive. Like he was these guys, they, they would work so unbelievably hard for the opportunity to like steal scraps like people would work on i remember we were i worked on uh beverly hills cop three i just got out of grad school and i needed a job and a bunch of friends of mine were working on beverly hills cops three and they were literally like getting film scraps from right the 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 ends of the film that weren't being used and people were saving them so they could shoot on them which was insane (laughs) i know and you know, a couple nights ago, we had some uh, friends over for a physically distant outside uh, dinner, and um, we uh, lit a fire. And I took my iPhone, and you can shoot the fire in slow mo video on your fucking phone. <laughs> Anyways, now I, I have a crazy dot. I, w- I want to see if this connects. So I'm, I'm going through this whole thing about scarcity and abundance. And I, I love this whole thread. It's, it's a very, it's a very powerful I- set of ideas for me. And as I'm reading, I sort of have this, aha, is Stephen describing crime? That is to say, if I'm a person who lives in a scarcity world, I become a taker. And if I'm a person who lives in a world of abundance, 
I become a creator. Is that a, is, am, I, am I insane? Am I connecting any dot here? You know, first of all, I try to stay in my lane. Crime is a sociological, cultural phenomenon. You're, you're literally outside of, of where my levels of expertise go. And I don't I try not to stretch that far into culture stuff because that's not, I'm not an expert on that stuff and other people are. But what I will say is that I grew up around a lot of outlaw types, shall we say. And usually they're, they're, if people are turning to crime, it's because they don't, they don't see any other options, right? I'm not... I have, I've met very, you know, sort of few people who went in that direction because they thought they had choices. Uh, usually it's because people don't have choices. And um, so that's my two cents on that one. But I do think um, there is, you know, uh, there is something to be said for an abundance mindset. There is something to be said for the idea um you know, that there's enough to go around for everybody, which is not to say that, you know, th- it's always a competition. I say this in the book when I talk about kind of long, the secret to long haul creativity. I don't think people, the world is a lot more competitive than I think most people are, are realize um, one way or the other. Um, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I, I, I'm a fan of competition. I like it. it I think it brings out um, really great stuff in people. Um, but I get that it's not everybody. It, it's not everybody's cup of tea. But I, I do think um, there's enough to go around. And I, you know, I don't personally. Um, I'd much rather work with people with an abundance mindset than a scarcity mindset. Um, it just it produces better results. Amen. Hallelujah, brother. And, and, and less and less legal problems down the line. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Well, and the the old twenty five percent of something is a lot better than one hundred percent of nothing. <laughs> There's wisdom in that. Maybe I'll wrap with this one. Um, the the minute in the book you describe this work as he, you say, and now you're playing the infinite game. This game of making the impossible happen. Uh, this game of of truly high performance. Um, and so. Tell me a little bit about why um, why the infinite game. Yeah, it's not. I mean, it's obviously not my term. It's James Carse, philosopher James Carse's famous term. And he said, look, there are two kinds of games we play here on Earth. You have finite games, which are things like politics, love, and war. This is from game theory. And a finite game is a game where there are clearly defined rules, a bounded field of play, and winners and losers. Right? Like, you know, at a football game, who won, who lost. You know, in an election, who won, who lost. These are finite games. Infinite games are uh, love is an infinite game. Uh, creativity is an infinite game. The goal of an infinite game is not to win or lose. It's to keep on playing. The rules keep changing. There's no bounded field of play. And the point I was making is that peak performance is an infinite game. You can't win it. But I will say, I think big performance is an unusual infinite game because you can actually lose. And the only way you lose is by not playing, right? But not, and, and, and w- by not trying to go big, whatever that is for you. That's what I really think. And I think, you know, it's a, it's a much, because when I say peak performance is an infinite game, like how do you win, right? And, and, and what is peak performance for you today is going to 
you know, you're going to grow. Peak performance is about using your skills to the utmost again and again and again. So you keep getting better and better and better and better. So it's an endlessly moving target as well. So that's what I mean uh, by those ideas. But I, you know, ultimately it's, there is no more fun game in the world than what am I actually capable of, right? That's the most fun game we can play. Um, in this world is what am I actually capable of? Or the only game we actually like more is what are you and me together actually capable of, right? That's the, that's the one game we probably like a little more than what am I capable of. It's what we are capable of together. That's a little more fun for a lot of people to play. I'm an introvert and I fucking hate people. So like, I like to play the other one, but everybody else seems to like each other and that's just fine. <laughs> Stephen, uh, you're amazing. It's an absolute thrill to not just meet you, to, but uh, to get this time with you. Um, this book, The Art of the Impossible, is an absolutely legendary piece of work. Uh, I think it's going to be one of the most important books in probably a decade. And um, I have a sense of what it takes to write a heartfelt book like this and a massively researched book like this. Um, so I know this was an incredible amount of work and, and a real labor of love. And I'm just leading up to telling you, thank you for writing this legendary book, Stephen. You're welcome. And I will, uh, I will, all the people I drove fucking crazy along the way, like my wife, I'll just pass it along. I'll be like, look, a lot of people are saying, thank you um, for putting up with Stephen while he wrote that book. <laughs> what, what's your wife's name, Stephen? Joy. My Joy? Joy. Joy. Well, please thank Joy for me. Tell her I appreciate uh, her lending you to us. <laughs> and whatever whatever you did, whatever uh, grievances she may have, uh, I apologize to her for you. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta, that's going to go over really well. <laughs> Honey, I was on this podcast. Thanks, man. All I right, Stephen. Your interest. Thank you so much. It was really fun getting to hang out with you. Thank you, brother, and, and come back anytime. <laughs> You're amazing. Thank you, man. Thank Bye -bye. you, Stephen. Well, there he is, the legendary Stephen Kotler. His brand new book is coming out right now, and I highly suggest you pick up a copy. Now, in times like these, being flexible and adaptable is critical to surviving and thriving. And that's where my friends at Oracle NetSuite come in. You see, with NetSuite, the flexibility is built in. You can scale up, scale down, God forbid, spin off, uh, change, adopt new business models, adopt new digital channels, whatever you need to do. NetSuite's flexibility lets you do it all quickly and easily. There's a reason 63% of recent tech IPOs run NetSuite. Visit netsuite.com slash different today for your free product tour. That's netsuite.com slash different. And speaking of legendary businesses, I believe there's no such thing as a legendary business today that isn't a digital business. And over the last year or so, uh, the need to accelerate digital transformation uh, has, has accelerated. <laughs> And that's where my friends at Splunk come in. You see, Splunk is the leader in data to everything. Splunk lets you build a more resilient organization, accelerate your cloud-driven transformation, exceed customer uh, expectations, and a lot more. As a matter of fact, Domino's turned to Splunk to reposition itself as, quote, 
an e-commerce company that happens to sell pizza, end quote. And the global pizza chain shifted its focus to digital channels and emerging technologies without surrendering the personal touch that goes into every Domino's pizza. With Splunk, you can thrive in the data age too. Visit Splunk.com slash D2E. That's Splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E. All right, we would like to thank the legendary Stephen Kotler. Woo! What a conversation and what a book. The Art of Impossible, a peak performance primer is out now. Also would like to thank Anne Valentino and Alyssa Fortunato for helping to make this episode happen. Thank you so much, ladies. Uh, my friends at OneLifeFullyLive.org are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. And One Life has been making a difference in underserved communities for 10 years now. If you want to make a difference, check out OneLifeFullyLive.org. My friends at Bottleneck.online are the first dedicated distant assistant. They've been physically distancing before that was a thing. So if you need a legendary assistant who's nowhere near you, check out Bottleneck.online today. My friends at Atranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out atre.net today. And I would also like to encourage you to think about the concept of justice deposits. What a justice deposit is, is moving money from where you bank today to a black-owned bank. You see, uh, banks only can lend money if they have deposits. So when you move 5%, 10%, 20%, or 100% of your money to black-owned banks, they now have more to lend to our black sisters and brothers. So... If you believe in fair access to capital, why not consider moving some of your cash deposits to a black-owned bank in a justice deposit? All right. I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And this oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. If you got any value out of it, please share it. Um, All right, do remain perturbed. We are produced and edited by the GOAT, the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. Uh, Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. They've been on a tear lately. (laughs) Sarah Knox and Jamie J do technical execution and build Lockhead.com. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. Remember to spread podcasts, not viruses. Remember the passing lane is the passing lane. Get out of the left-hand lane. Prius drivers, I'm talking to you. Listen to uh, the Tragically Hip. Remember that comedian Kathleen Madigan was right. She's got some specials out there on Netflix. Uh, She's hysterical. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Carson Sweet, CEO of Cloud Passage. Sorry, Carsey. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please stay safe, stay healthy, take good care of each other. Of course, stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your different.